Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. You're probably wrapping up 2021 as you hear this. Maybe you're getting ready for an end-of-year New Year's party. Maybe you are recovering from a New Year's party and coming into the new year. Either way, myself and Paul Hoppy are going to take a couple minutes to... Eh, a lot more than a couple minutes, you know what? <laughs> but we're going to take some time to talk about what happened in 2021. What are kind of some of the general ethical questions that we got to talk about? And we're going to look at a whole bunch of different properties where... We either haven't had a chance to, or there isn't quite enough there to like get into a whole episode about, but they're still like, they raise one or two questions. So think of this as kind of like, um, uh, oh, Paul, what's the thing that, that happens like at an end of a show where it's like, you know, ra- rapid fire. This is, this is rapid fire superhero ethics. I thought Paul was going to say something. I'm not going to let him say something, but we're going to have a whole bunch of commercials say something right after this message. What the hell am I saying? Commercials are coming soon. We have no control. Here you go. I'm just going to drink my smoothie. There you go. That's not a commercial for smoothies. Welcome back. I'm Matthew, your host. I'm joined as always by Paul. Uh, (laughs) As almost always. As very (laughs) frequently. Almost always. Very, very unofficial uh, recurring guest. Yes. um, Friend of the pod. Um, Yeah, so Paul, let's kind of just jump right in. What are are kind of your overall thoughts of 2011, uh, 2021 (laughs) content-wise, especially from the the kind of ethical perspective we like to talk about? Yeah, so first of all, 2011, I miss it. Uh, 2021, (laughs) it also happened. Yeah. yeah, it's funny. I mean, I came into this year as I go into next year thinking like, eh, maybe I won't really watch anything, you know. But there just there were a lot of things where it's like, all right, I'll watch that. All right, I'll watch that. Oh, yeah, this looks interesting. Uh, a lot of shows that I think had a lot of good stuff that maybe didn't totally stick the landing. Um, mm-hmm. I actually really enjoyed being able to watch a bunch of movies right when they came out on yeah. streaming, you know. Uh, I really didn't enjoy not being able to watch other movies when, you know, that I might not be the most excited for, but still don't want like super spoiled before I get to see them. And you know, uh, it, yeah, I think that's kind of going to be one of the, for me, one of my overall thoughts of media for this year. Uh, I'm recording this uh, in the morning. Last night, I watched The Matrix, the new Matrix movie. It had come out that day. I watched it at home. I got to pop my own popcorn, watch it with my brother-in-law and my, and my spouse, and didn't have to worry about parking, didn't have to worry about getting in and out, didn't worry, but most importantly, didn't have to worry about getting infected mm-hmm. or wearing a mask the whole movie or, or any of that kind of stuff. And, you know, I've had a lot of critiques of Warner Brothers, both the content that they've made, but also the, you know, all the stories we've heard about the the set, uh, the, the things that happened to... Uh, on on set with uh, the making of the uh, Justice League movie and all the problems with Joss Whedon and stuff like that and and you know the the way Warner Brothers has has, has dealt with that has raised a lot of questions and I'm I'm not putting that aside but I have to give Warner Brothers so much props right now because I I had to like I had to work really hard to find a showing of Spider Man that was not going to be in a crowded theater and. I know you you even haven't done that yet, and and for very obvious reasons. And I know a lot of other people who I would love to be talking to about Spider Man, who I know are just dodging spoilers all the time. And it, it to me is the biggest issue right now. And I, I'm from a practical standpoint, but also from an ethical standpoint, I think it's really abominable that companies like Sony and Disney and so many others are are insisting people go to theaters at a time when it's not really safe. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I saw a post questioning like. Will Spider-Man be the first movie to clear 1.5 billion this year, or since whenever, or 
you know, and I was like, what? <laughs> no. And then I look at, I'm like, wow. Like, I don't know whether it will or won't, but like, wow. I, I was, I was surprised that there was going to be that much, um, you know, demand for going to the theater right now. Right. And, you know, I do think there's something to be said for like going to the theater is a choice. And so if you want to say, okay, people can choose to go to the theater to see something fine. Sure. Uh, but like, if then there's not any other choice to do that thing that there could really, really easily be, as we've seen, then it's like, it is a choice, right? And I've chosen not to go. I went to a theater once this year. Mm-hmm. I've been in a theater zero times. Uh, I, I saw Shang-Chi as a, you know, at the drive-in. Um, right. And then I saw it on Disney Plus and I was like, wow, I wish I'd just seen it the first time this way because I could actually see what was going on in the scaffold fight, you know? Like, yeah. it's just a more enjoyable experience. I watched half of The Matrix last night. I got a little bored. Lee literally fell asleep and I thought, you know what? <laughs> Let's watch the rest of this tomorrow. Like, when we yeah. feel like it, you know? And, like, watching Wonder Woman 84, I guess this was last year, right? This was mm-hmm. almost exactly a year ago. But, like, uh, and, you know, in Black Widow and just being like, I'm going to pause these and yeah. go get more water or use the bathroom or whatever, as opposed to being like, well, I have a decision between missing a scene and, like, obeying my bladder. Like, yeah. you know, it just, for me, it's a better experience. And for a lot of people, I know it's more than that, aside from just the pandemic. It's like there's people who just don't leave their homes because they can't. Or... On the biological needs part, I just need to say... This is a different thing, but but I've been seeing a lot of posts once again about, oh my god, how how can people like get up when the credits start at a Marvel movie? Don't you know you have to wait and all this? And it's right. like you know, I always want to say to them, come back and talk to me when you're my age and your bladder is like I just sat here for two and a half hours. Plus my back is killing me. Right, right. Plus, like, <laughs> but that's a whole other story. Yeah, hilarious. But, yeah, totally. And it's funny because I, I, I'm glad you've seen at least part of Matrix and, and your reaction lets me t- say that this isn't a spoiler. I'm not going to spoil anything about the movie yeah. itself. With both The Matrix and Wonder Woman 84, I, I don't think either of them were the greatest of movies. Mm-hmm. Like, There's a lot about the new Matrix to talk about that I want to – Yeah, there are things about. I like too. I mean, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, but it's – I'm worried that those aren't going to do well and so people are going to point to right. like, well, that means this doesn't work when right. in fact it's just – Unfortunately, I don't think there's good movies that they could be. But but going back to what you were saying, I also think the point about the choice is I think really important because I think when I say things like this, people think I'm saying either A, that we should like close down theaters entirely or that I'm like shaming people who are choosing to go to mm-hmm. the theater. And the first is not true. I think there was a point in time at which that would have been a good thing to do. I think we're just – there's a lot of ways in which we're not at that point in time and or maybe we could be at some point again. That, that, that's kind of a whole other story. Yeah, it's a whole different question. In, and, and in the same way, like, I don't think – I think if the choice is there, if some people are choosing to go, that's fantastic. And, you know, I hope people are doing that responsibly and they're being vaccinated and boosted and all that kind of stuff. But putting all that aside, it's the idea of the choice. You know, it's the idea that, like, even if it's not even just for people who, like, just aren't comfortable, but, like, for those folks who are immunocompromised or have, like, they're living with a small child or with an elderly person or someone else where them getting infected is a much worse thing than someone else. Um as well as also just, I mean, I know so many people who in, in the disabled community I talked to who were yeah. like, we hate that COVID caused this, but yeah, this is so much better for us, you know, just, yeah, disabled seating might happen in a movie, but still parking is going to be hard or, you know, all 
all the different things that can go into or just people who work night jobs you know yeah. they're sleeping yeah people who work or and sleep during movie theater hours yeah. hours parents of small kids you know i think there's there's so many reasons why having having that option uh, cuz i do th- i do think there's something for watching a movie in a big theater i think sometimes the effects are a lot better that way i think you know Watching a comedy when a whole bunch of people in the room are laughing around with you is not everyone's favorite, but I think it's something I definitely enjoy. I don't want to lose the theater-going experience, but especially during COVID, it just seems so irresponsible to me of these companies to not at least make that an option. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree, especially during COVID. But like, also, it it's the sort of thing where, to me, it's kind of opened my eyes to, I mean, obviously, there have been people all this time who are, you know, maybe you're agoraphobic, maybe you know, you're, you're elderly and they're just like, yeah, I, I don't want to go to a place where people are going to be, you know, trampling people or like, there's, yeah. there's people who literally cannot leave their homes. Right. I mean, there's like meals on wheels for a reason. Right. Yeah. And, and to be like, no, you don't get to see something when it comes out because we want to make the maximum amount of money because this is, you know, and not even necessarily that this is the way to make the maximum amount of money, right? It's like, mm-hmm. this is the model, this is our deal with theaters, and it has, it must continue to be because it is what has been. It just, right. you know, and to me, it's like, yeah, like, I, I don't think a ton of people going to a theater is a really good idea, especially, like, when there's, you know, there's, like, the new variant, like, right now, yeah. which, like, maybe is less virulent, Right. But the data's not in, or it's not conclusive yep. anyway yet, right? Um, definitely spreads a lot faster. And, you know, but th- that's there's a difference between being like, I don't think this is a good idea, and like, I think government force should be used to stop this, right? Very, exactly. very different. Um, there's a lot of things I don't think are good ideas that uh, yeah. that I'm like, yeah, that doesn't mean I think people with guns should be like, no, you can't do this. But what I don't understand is the fairly large amount of people from what I've seen or or fairly vocal people who are like this definitely should only be in the theaters because this is the way and I'm like maybe just give a little bit of thought to all the people who just can't you know it's like yeah we can work out deals between people who work on movies and production companies and you know distribution companies and all that like Mm -hmm. you can rework things right Right. You know, like just being like, oh, we're just going to change it and then we don't have to pay you as much. Okay, not super cool. But again, like I feel like the lives of, you know, the masses are like probably more important than, you know, the millions of any given person. Yeah, I I mean, that's one of the things, you know, when the Scarlett Johansson decision first came down, I said this was my exact concern Mm -hmm. that I, you know, she had a signed contract. It's not cool for them just to say like, well, you get screwed. But also, I, I was afraid that it would mean that they would say, okay, well, our contracts say that we have to have big theater releases, so we're just going to keep that. You right. know? Because I think, that, I think there's a third option where people in advance go to the actors, the directors, all the people of residuals, which goes a lot further down the list, and say, listen, like, act of God, you know, like, that not, I, I, I yeah, mean, no, I understand as, as, legal as term, an expression, yeah, yeah force majeure. Yeah. Yeah, that that the conditions under which we thought we were going to release this movie have changed. The overall pot of money we're going to make from this is probably going to be significantly reduced. How do we discuss this in a way that everyone still gets some, you know, we're all kind of getting cut a little bit by by the reduction. But, well, especially those higher up, not necessarily Mm -hmm. the the people lower down. But, yeah, but the fact that that hasn't happened 
and, and I think there's a connection between the two different things you were talking about there of how you were saying that, like, you don't want to force people, but, like, you do think it's a good idea maybe that having a huge amount of people in a crowded theater all yelling and screaming and excitement for the movie is maybe not the best idea out there. And how strong some people are about, like, it has to be only right. in theaters. Yeah. I think there's a defensiveness there. I think mm. I think there's sort of a sense of... And, and that's why I kind of want to be clear, like... In this in this conversation, I'm not trying to judge people one way or the other. I'm trying to argue for a choice. Right. Um, and yeah, I think if people ask me my opinion, I'll say which one I think you know is maybe the better choice. But I'm not. I I, I think that it's it, it's the fear of judgment is in some way that like, like well, but it has to be in the, if it right. has to be in the theater, then right. you're not getting judged for going to the theater. Right. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Um, and and I do think also like, I think the current amount of internet discussion around these things is a big part of the issue because like you said it's it's a getting spoiled thing you mm -hmm. know like 10 years ago there were movies that i wanted to see and if i didn't see them i knew i could wait till they came out on you know on dvd or vhs or right. on netflix or whatever and yeah maybe like i'd have to walk away from a water cooler every now and then while people were talking about it but it wasn't a huge deal yeah whereas now like so many of the movies are, A, based on so many surprises, like, you know, with who's going right. to be cast or what's going to happen. And just the – you have to go off the internet entirely to not get spoiled. Yeah. And when the studios are doing so much to encourage that discussion, to me that makes it all the more important. Like, give everyone a chance to go see it. To see it. Right. Yeah, I totally agree. Um also, like, I, I think that makes us part of the problem, but uh, <laughs> but really, it is it, it's a larger, you know. I mean, it, it's a yeah. it's a cultural thing. Like, people just insert memes into random stuff everywhere, right? And yeah. people want to insert the most topical memes, which are always going to be the most recent things. And personally, like, yeah, I could just on a personal level completely give up social media and be fine, mm -hmm. and to be honest, probably be a happier person uh, and more productive, but. You know, for promoting some of my stuff, Zen Madman on Twitter. Um, yeah. You know, like I want to interact with people, and yeah. that's that's just like strategically good. And I mean, you know, to some extent, I enjoy it until I don't, and it becomes dysfunctional. But like, it's it's like, you know, being like, oh, just give up all this stuff if you don't want to do things exactly the way I say you should do them. It's like, right. well, that's not really that much of a choice. It's a choice. But it's not that much of a choice. It's not a good. It's not a choice between you know multiple very reasonable options. I'd also should, would just interject in terms of my own perspective. Like I do judge actions a lot, mm -hmm. um, but I very much don't judge people. Like yeah. I think everybody does a fair amount of pretty bad stuff in their lives, and most people also do a fair amount of like stuff that you know good stuff. And by bad and good stuff, I mean. Things that completely subjectively to me are good and bad, you know? Right. And, like, uh, yeah, I'll judge actions. I'll be like, yeah, I don't think that's a good thing to do. But not, like, I therefore think you are a monster. Just like, yeah, like, maybe maybe that wasn't the best. Um, and Warner Brother, like, I think they did some good stuff around releasing the movies the way they did. It sounds to me like they actually went to people and tried to have a conversation ahead of time. Whereas good. I feel like Disney was just like, we're just going to do it this way. And then they got, like... Right some pushback and they're like okay we won't do it that way and it's like but like meanwhile warner brothers does a lot of other bad stuff and disney does some what do they do good i mean they make good <laughs> content i guess that's it <laughs> yeah all right and um, 
Um, I, I thought Patsy Jenkins had had said that she'd gotten kind of screwed about uh, Wonder Woman being released, but maybe they've gotten better since then. Maybe. I also think it wasn't as much about um, Patty Jenkins, mon- not Patsy, yeah. sorry. I think, I, I think it wasn't as much about money, and it was more like, this film is meant to be seen in the theater. Oh, Which, okay. like, whatever, I don't have that much sympathy for that. Um, yeah, no, perspective. It's like people could see it in the theater. Yeah. Like any movie maker being like, people should be forced to see this in the yeah. theater. I'm like, okay. And I think also, yeah, I think for me the thing about the actions is, and, and this, a lot of you're saying about like, is it a choice? Is it not a choice? Um, there, there's some content that's been been coming out in the last couple of months mm. that we might discuss that's mm-hmm. uh, connected to that. Um, because <laughs> I think I think that's actually a really important thing that actually is probably an ethical issue in a lot of the stuff we talk about is. You know that a choice to make a choice means that you have a whole bunch of free options. You know, and and that I think one of the reasons why I, I, one of the things that I think is is difficult now is that the choice between go to the theater and see it or not see it. Right. Like, I, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that like getting spoiled on something is as bad as like causing someone to get infected and die by any means. I'm not. I'm not equating those two, but I do think that like. The media culture is such, and the like, the the level of excitement is such that yeah, that it it, it is. E- I I think it's very understandable that for some folks, and and it, to some extent myself included, like I did find a way to go see it, even in a small theater. Like having to wait two months to see it and missing out on all the internet discussion about it, and possibly getting spoiled, but also just not getting to be. I, I think during the pandemic, for me especially, like podcasting and all these things. Being able to talk to people about the content we are seeing is a super important thing of what's helped me get by during mm-hmm. this time of complete isolation. And and so yeah, so it, it's just a little bit of a like I I think I think like you like I going to see it something on the opening night whatever like I think that's a decision I would not make and I might say to others like eh, I think you can make a better decision, but I also get why given like sure. how shitty it is to like get spoiled on it or to miss out on all of that. So, yeah, you know, I mean, and, if you want to record on something right away or you want to talk to people about it right away, yeah. you know. So it's, it's one more ways where it's like yes, we have a choice, but the theater, the, the theaters are the, the studios are kind of putting us into a very difficult position where it's not two great options and they don't have to right you know i agree so let's talk about some of the um specific things we want to get into and, and what i'm going to say here is uh to kind of talk about the spoiler thing for a second oh yeah we're going to basically go like rapid fire and there's going to be a number of different topics we're going to talk about with each one we will spoil it somewhat but what i'm going to do is uh, i will tell you here's the topic we're about to discuss if you want to skip ahead and what I'm going to do is when I edit this, I will I will write down time the timestamp yeah. of when we start and then when we end. And I'll have little like five second pauses or so. So forgive us a little bit of a pause, but to let you catch up. So that way, um, uh, that way you can like, you know, there's going to be like 10 things we talk about. If you've seen six of them, you can listen to our discussion of those and then skip forward through some of the others. I like it. I like it. Cool. As cool. you were starting to say that, I was like, oh, you know what would be a good idea? Yeah, that that thing you're saying you were already thinking of doing—that's <laughs> a good idea. Cool. Cool. I, I one thing I will say is on this outline, maybe number three and four we flip them. Okay. Because of what cool. we were just talking about. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah, actually, that's a good right. idea. So, uh, let's start with uh, a property that is all about um, making bad choices <laughs> and and <laughs> who you judge based on the choices they do. Uh, and that is the uh, um, K- Korean television show that was a huge hit on Netflix uh, not too long ago, Squid Game. So um, for this, Paul, you have still not seen it, correct? Correct, but I have read the entire plot summary on Wikipedia. Right. 
And, and I've seen it. I think we're, gonna, we're not going to get too into the exact details of it, but we will be spoiling some of the general concepts and things like that. So if you have not seen Squid Game yet, and you're planning to, I think, I think for many people you haven't seen Squid Game because it's too violent, and so you might just enjoy the conversation even without. But if you haven't, go ahead and uh, skip ahead, and we will, uh, again, the show notes will tell you when to get into it. So let me say this, Paul. What do you know about Squid Game in terms of, like, from the ethical co- concepts that are coming up and stuff like that? Right. So spoilers. Um, my understanding yep. is it's a game where a bunch of people get invited slash kidnapped to play children's games and then uh, get murdered if they lose. And there's a cash prize at the top, which is like a billion won or something, which is mm-hmm. like million dollars. or I mean, it's some number, multiple of that, right? Like 57 million or whatever. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I saw the thing for it. I was like, oh, what's this? And then I saw the, you know, basically the preview. I was like, this is definitely going to be a show where they're just going to kill most of the characters, probably. And I'm going to hate that. And and the better the show is, the more I'm going to dislike it. Whereas, like, if it's, like, a really crappy show and it doesn't make any of the characters interesting or relatable, it's like, all right, whatever. Some actor just got some paint on their head. But, like, once I actually start caring about the characters, then it feels real to me, right? The mind makes it real. Um, But... (laughs) (laughs) But, um, it, you know, it... it, I think it, it... looked to me like something that had some very interesting takes on, you know, um, our modern capitalist society and, um, and like the nature of choice to me. That's why I was suggesting pivoting to, into this because like, it seems like there's some element of voluntary participation, but life events make it less. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. The way that it does it, I think that uh, to me, that those are the fundamental ethical questions of it. I think we're going to do a full episode on it Mm -hmm. at some later point. Just schedules got hard to line up. Is that everybody who's in it is in truly dire economic circumstances where they see no way out. Right. So that's the first level of like, do you have a choice? Right. And with most of them, it's not just that they're in real danger; it's also that people around them are going to suffer. Mm-hmm. You know. And so, like, one of our main characters, his mother is quite sick, and like, because the healthcare system is so awful, and like, there's no way to to help. They can't get what they need. Other characters are in, like, incredible debt and are going to go into, like, legal trouble or, you know, one has actually done legal defrauding. Another is an immigrant who's getting, um, you know, treated really horribly because they're an immigrant and, and things like that. So, yes, and, and, and one of the things that's beautiful about it is they don't – most of the time they don't know what are the consequences of what they're choosing, mm. which, as we discussed, student loan debate, uh, student right. forgiveness sure. feels very relevant. Sure. Um uh, but also that, you know, one of the key things is they play the first game. They see that they're all going to get murdered if, if, they, if they lose the game. And then they get the option to vote to end the game. Right. Because you can always vote to go home. Um, and, and a majority of them vote to go home by only one. But then by the next day, by like two days later, quite a lot of them have realized they want to come back. Mm. So, so it is voluntary, right. but it's, it's a, it, one of the, I think one of the cruelties of it, one of the sadistic parts of what the game masters are doing is to make them make the choice, right. you know, and, and that one of the ways that the story plays out is that in the first couple rounds, like the first game is basically red light, green. it is literally red light, green light. Right. So everyone's working, you're, you're not in competition with each other at all. And the way the prize is set up is that it's. For each person, 
I think they. I think each person puts a billion uh, yawn. Is that not Juan? Juan, thank you. Um, into a big pot. If you step out of the game, like that money gets, uh, I think redistributed to everybody else. Basically, like so, if a hundred people survive the game to the end, they all get to share it. The idea, of course, being uh, that that means there's now a decided interest for you right. in other people not surviving the game. Okay. And as it goes on, like, so at first, it's everybody is all working kind of together. Then you get divided up into large teams, and you and the team are working against each other, are working against all the other teams. Right. And then you're sold, um, okay, now you have to pair up. You have to be in a team of two people. So you find the person you're closest with. And then actually this competition is you against them. Mm. And so it's, it, it's all of these things that are done to – Basically, like, again, make people have to make choices where it's like, which one of my good friends do I want to die? Right, or do right. I want to die myself? And it's – I think it's one of the most ethically interesting parts of the thing is that the question of who's the villain. Right. Because one of the characters who emerges is someone who is willing to betray everyone else in the game, including all these people who seem like they're really good friends with him, in order to make sure that he doesn't die and that he has money to help his family. Right. And like that's a like. It sounds I mean, like it, it, sounds like the question ahead, yeah. is more who's not the villain rather than right, <laughs> right like yeah and like what level of because it's like I don't know I mean like for you on a general level you know a bunch of people are playing a game and there's good rewards and one of them screws over other people in order to win like I think we're gonna be pretty judgmental of that in a situation where it is you're gonna die or I'm gonna die. How judgmental are you of the person who kind of cheats to some extent or doesn't like, you know, takes every advantage they can so that they don't die, even if it means the other people do die? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I play poker for a living and yeah. I think it's really important to like poker is a game that a person chooses to play. Sure, that people can have, you know, um, like gambling addictions and then to what extent yeah. is it a choice that's a that's a question right but by and large you know people choose to sit down at the table when someone's chosen to sit down at the table to me it's like well we've chosen to sit down at the table acknowledging that these are the rules so we're going to play by the rules and if you break the rules you're stealing right which right. I don't look at stealing the way most people do like I'm not a fan but I also don't think it's this like I, I I don't have a really deep abiding feeling towards personal property, yeah. you know, outside of like things that one creates themselves and have some like more personal value than they do, you know, mm -hmm. things that aren't fungible. Um, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm very anti-cheating in poker. Um, yeah. Someday we'll cover rounders maybe. And that, yeah. you know, that kind of brings up some of that. Um, but like, you know, if you're playing for life and death in a game that I guess you chose to enter, but it's like, you know, like, yeah, just don't play the game. But on the other hand, it's like that's easy to say if you don't have whatever extenuating circumstances there are, right? And right. so it's like in a in a game of life and death, it's like, yeah, I, I think it's reasonable, certainly, to do whatever it takes to survive. And uh, to me, you know, this the difference between force and coercion, mm -hmm. you know, where, I mean, I think... You know, there's implied force, right? Which is basically essentially still force, right? It's the, right. the threat of force. Whereas coercion is kind of, to me, more basically like, you know, this thing that you really, really, really want, I'm going to dangle it. Or like this thing that you really need, 
and maybe there's some other ways you could go about getting it, but right. um, it's going to be very difficult. I mean, to me, that's just basically the way society functions right now where i mean we're like say in the united states i mean speaking of healthcare, like you it's just hard to get health care if you don't just have a job and the number of people i know who are like oh well i would quit this place but like you know the health care i need the health care yeah. i need the health insurance like you know it's you're not people aren't being forced to continue working at that place but they are being coerced and yeah. you know and i think that's an important distinction and the difference between choice and like you know, between literally no choice, between bad choices, or between very limited choices, where one of them is like, really? What kind of a choice right. is that? And then between like, you know, uh, a very free and open choice where there's multiple right. reasonable options and you can choose in a purely, you know, uncoerced fashion. Um, I think there's a lot there, right? And I think it's yeah. important to be distinct about like what's what. Um, but at the same time, to not be like, well, because this isn't this one most extreme thing, it's, you know, it's the other extreme. It's like, no, yeah. right? There's a lot of middle ground a lot of time. Yeah, I, I think I think that really summarizes it well. And I think, for me, one of the things I love about Squid Game is it's clearly a metaphor, it's clearly commentary. And one thing I think it's kind of getting at is that what often will happen is the groups in power whatever it is, whatever situation, in this case it's, you know, economic power and, 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 and options, you can create situations where people have to make terrible choices because the only way they can survive, and then you can judge them because they're making the terrible choices, and thus that justifies what they're doing. You know, right. and there's definitely a sense in this of, like, the rich people watching being like, oh, my God, can you believe this person would betray his friends? And it's, well, you've created that situation. Of course that's going to happen. Right, you know? exactly. Um so yeah, it is a great show. I think we can go on for a long time there. But let's next next one we're gonna do about is Harder They Fall. Yeah. Um Harder They Fall is a, a really interesting show that um I, I thought about us doing an episode on. I think frankly, I, I, I think we're probably I'm probably not gonna host an episode on it, to be Fair. honest, because it's it is um about black cowboys in the West and it is it's basically a western, like but where it's a western. It is, it is yeah, a, it, it's literally a Western. It is a Western, and it, in some ways it's actually it's more historically accurate because one of the things it's based on is the fact that, like, an awful lot of the cowboys who were in the West were uh, sometimes, uh, you know, folks who had been free their whole lives, but a lot of it was, you know, slaves after the Civil War, uh, you know, enslaved people who were, you know, had gone West after the Civil mm -hmm. War. And, and racism is a big part of it. And the attempt of, like, what black people are going to do in the West and in terms of like building their own society or integrating into society or creating their own things, whatever it is. There's, there are great issues that are raised that I really enjoyed watching that as a white person, I, I don't really want to comment on. But I think we can still talk about uh, for a few minutes about the importance of that show because for me, I think we've talked about this with Luke Cage and with um, Black Panther and stuff like that. But again, seeing a story that is completely – where it's not a black character, a token black character or two token black characters. But it's a story in which white people are very much not centered. I think there's maybe like eight minutes total that a white character appears on screen. Um, it's a great movie. I thought the acting was – the acting was fantastic. The dialogue, it was a little bit a little bit uh, uh, repetitive uh, – not repetitive, but a little bit cliched. But – Overall, I just thought it was great, and I just thought it, it, it's one of the things where I'm just I'm so happy that it exists. Yeah, me too. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. I, you know, it was maybe like a little bit of a third act problem. Some some things that some ways that I I kind of hoped it would go that it didn't go. But yeah, um, yeah, I just thought it was a really good western. Um, I 
I'd say it's, you know, they're outlaws, right? Not like cowboys are wearing cowboy hats, but like, um, yeah. they're, you know, they're literally mostly outlaws, um, or, or, uh, a marshal, right? And, mm-hmm. um, it felt very, uh, Robert Rodriguez to me actually with kind of the music and this yeah. very stylish, um, and also kind of Tarantino, um, Mm-hmm. But, you know, the cast was fantastic. Um, it's got Jonathan Majors, um, Idris Elba, Zazie Beetz, um, Lakeith Stanfield, who is just, is like quietly one of my favorite actors now. Um, yeah. Who's also in Judas and the Black Messiah, which I think that came out this year as well, right? I believe is, so, yeah. is that on our list? It's e- That's either on yeah, our list. Or- yeah, yeah, yeah. So that came out this year. Um, and I-, I thought he was excellent. And just, just an outstanding cast overall. Um mm-hmm. And I, I thought it just did a lot of things really well. And, you know, it it takes real historical figures, right? Like, yeah. there were black people in the West. Like, that was a thing. Yeah. And that gets very ignored. And when it doesn't get ignored, um, you know, there's very little agency or, or very little respect given towards black characters in, you know, most Westerns. And so, you know, it's just really nice to see a movie that, like where you know the main characters are black the side characters are black like and you know i mean you said racism plays a big role and it it does and it doesn't right like yeah it's a it's clearly a thing that they are all a lot of their decisions are being shaped against the knowledge that they live in a larger racist society but yeah like there's no there's no antagonist running around saying the n-word or just being clearly right it's like the racists are all off screen right but racism is, is the atmosphere right most of the time except for like one scene right but like yeah but the but like to the point where someone starts to say something and then just gets shot and it's like that's not going to be a thing in this movie you know it's like a yeah, very clear well as done. as they uh were were driving you know, riding past the uh the Bozeman right um mm-hmm. what was it CA I forget its middle initial but it was like a reference to Chadwick Bozeman um the yeah. the name of the train right um but yeah oh and Delroy Lindo as as a marshal right um mm-hmm. yeah and uh it, it just it just felt like a really good movie you know that um, it. I I appreciate when you know it's like they weren't ignoring the fact that these characters were all black in a in a racist world, but right. that wasn't the main thing they were dealing with most of the time. You know they were yeah. dealing with their own personal things. I think I think the way it came up most is that Idris Elba, who plays the the villain, who like I never really thought of it until I saw this, but like. I don't know how Idris Elba hasn't been the main antagonist of a Quentin Tarantino movie because oh. he's just so perfect. In the, maybe yeah, it's because yeah. Quentin Tarantino wouldn't know what to do with him. Like, um, uh, you know, that's on Quentin, not on Idris. But he's just he's so perfect in that very stylized, you know, Western. Um, but that kind of like you could see him put in any era and being like just that menacing, yeah, menacing and charismatic of a villain. Mm-hmm. Because and the reason why I go into this from the racism point is it's only kind of implied, and they don't go. They don't go deep into it, and the question is: is he be- is he believing this, or is he kind of being cynical about it? But the implication is he is trying to build like an all black town yeah. in a very and like this is the this is the time when like Marcus Garvey and other people were talking about like black separatism and like either like literally all this, like former enslaved peoples moving back to Africa or like taking space in the United States and being like you have to just give us our own territory now, which is. You know, and, and those ideas were very much a part of the culture at the time. And I 
I appreciate that the that so his character is playing with those kind of ideas, mm-hmm. but without it becoming the main focus. It doesn't become a movie where I didn't feel like I got invited to pass judgment on if that is a is the right thing that black people at that time should have been doing. It was just a yeah, here's the thing he's doing. This is not for you to judge. This is just for you to watch the movie and like understand these people's stories mm-hmm. and and watch some cool shootouts. Yeah, yeah, and I thought um, that that whole plot line was kind of the one that I was sort of disappointed didn't become more of a thing. But at yeah. the same time, it just it would have then been a very different movie, you know. And yeah. and I do appreciate the movie as it was, and um, can see how like maybe having that whole angle be the focus might have would have just been very different and done something different and you know i would i would watch the hell out of that too but um, also true yeah yeah like like i said i think they were taken away from what this movie was doing but you you tell me they're gonna make a backstory about idris elba in that town right right i'm in yeah i'm so in (laughs) um all right so that will wrap up the harder they fall conversation all right welcome back from harder they fall um the next thing we're talking about is Kenshin, which uh, this is one that Paul has seen. I have not. Uh, but, Paul, as you understand, it, the way you want to talk about it, you're not going to get into spoilers much, right? Correct. So if you're, if you're super excited to see this or you're 100% a purist, maybe you want to skip ahead. But I think probably we're going to be able to talk about it in a way that not it's not really spoiled at all. So, Paul, go ahead. Yeah, so Kenshin is my favorite anime. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a series from... I feel like it has to be from the 90s, but um, I mean, I'll give away the basic premise of the character, which is, um, you know, Kenshin is a retired, not samurai, but was basically assassin, um, or they refer to him as a, a manslayer, um, who basically wanders the earth with the reverse sword blade and goes around not killing people, but trying to use his, you know martial excellence to um, help the weak and defend the weak and stuff like that, basically. And also kind of just to some extent, not live a normal life, but like, you know, make friends and whatever. Um, What I wanted to talk about was the live action movies, which two of which, one which is a prequel to that whole story, um, which is on Netflix. So there's, there's a live action of the prequel, basically. And then there's a kind of end of the story they call it the final. Um, so it's just Kenshin, I think, the beginning or begins or something like that. And mm-hmm. um, Kenshin, the final. And I won't get too much into the ethical, you know, questions. I mean, obviously, the idea of renouncing one's, you know, killing days is mm-hmm. is its own whole thing, right? It's, um, you know, I almost wonder whether, like, that sort of became my new conception of Batman and part of what I like about Batman mm-hmm. Because of Kenshin, even, you know. Yeah. Um, and, you know, um, I, w- I would say that The Last Avatar, The Last Airbender, not The Last Avatar. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> that would have been Korra if Zaheer got... Okay, spoilers for that. Um, <laughs> but I'd say, you know, there's a lot of kind of similarities there as well. And I just think that the, the live action movies, I was not sure how they were going to be able to do these. And I, I thought they were really well done. Um, I, I thought they really captured the essence of the characters. They managed to be very faithful to the originals while also feeling fresh to me. Um, right. So I just highly recommend them. Uh, Kenshin takes place during the the beginning takes place during the 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 Meiji Restoration, or like the you know the oh, revolution nice. and the um, uh-huh. 
what I think the 1860s, I think 1868, something like that. Um, And so, you know, there's a a larger historical context that I think is very interesting. And then um, just the sort of the decisions that the characters make, I think, are um, often thought provoking. Uh, the, the, the prequel movie, I've seen it described as the best prequel movie that a particular reviewer had ever seen. Um, I can't think of a better prequel movie, you know, but like, it's, it's so different in tone from the series because it's, it's earlier in Kenshin's life, you know, before the whole reverse blade thing. So, um, it's a little bloody, um, (laughs) you know, and it manages to do some things that, it, when I see similar tropes or whatever in other stories really bother me, but for some reason, uh, it just, it works, I think. And, um, yeah. and I, I don't know, I, I think it's worth a watch. And I, you know, I saw it this year and I was like, oh, hey, this is a good, you know, um, anime adaptation. Right. You know, we were going to talk about the Witcher anime, which is like the opposite, right? Which is like, <laughs> it's an anime from a live action series, although from originally from a, right. you know, from, from text books but right and video games yeah. and things like that right yeah it definitely sounds interesting and I, I i had no idea what it was you've mentioned it once or twice but yeah especially once we realized we were talking about something from 25 years ago like well, my spoiler concerns are a little bit less sure sure um but no but still always good to, yeah. to have that out and yeah it sounds like you know there are certain tropes that we we see all again and again and I, to me a trope is boring when it becomes a has to lead to B, has to lead to C, because that's what the trope is, and it feels like lazy writing. Right. What to me is interesting is when you say, we're going to take a trope, but put it in a new situation so we can ask, what, how, how does the situation change? Mm. You know, if A is in a different context, does B become a little different? Does C become a little different? And the story of a person who... You know, the Batman idea of, like, wanting to do good without killing people or of wanting to, like, you know, finding your own line between, like, is this vengeance or is this justice? Like, those are stories we're going to tell again and again and again yeah. because they're great stories. And, and yeah, so I think and, – and basing it in a Japanese context, basing it in, like, all the differences you're talking about. Um, yeah, it just not, it's, it is definitely something I want to get to because it sounds like there's some great questions it raises. And I – for me, I will always find one of the most interesting questions about like any of these hero stories or any anytime someone is using violence to achieve something they claim to be a good end. The limits that you're placing on your own violence always become very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's such a and, and we, you and I have talked about this before about like is it a legitimate thing? Like, are you actually causing a lot more lethal damage than you want to, or what? Um, this is a bit of a tangent, but I want to bring it up um, because of other things that have been happening in MCU properties. There's a renewed interest right now in the Netflix MCU mm. and people wanted to kind of reconnect things. And, you know, because Feige said that that Charlie Cox is going to come back right, and play Matt right. Murdock at, at some point. Um, and I've been listening to a lot of people. and I'm not saying this is bad at all, but it, 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 it was surprising to me saying that they can't watch the Netflix shows, especially like Daredevil, but any of them. Because they're too violent, because they're too, <laughs> because they're too, and I again, I want to say I have the highest respect. For, like I understand that things are harder to watch, and I I'm not especially for kids and stuff like that. I'm not judging that. To me, I find like oh, on a societal level, it's kind of troubling. Mm-hmm. Is that like 
it is, I think one of the reasons I like it, one of the reasons I love Logan so much is I don't like the idea of violence being sanitized. Mm. I don't like the idea that we can watch, that we can cheer on Captain America for his awesome fighting without realizing that, like, Every time he throws that shield, like bones are going to come out the other side of a person's head or, you know, back or whatever. It is. Like, not that we should see that all the time, but like, that, that's an extreme example. I'm probably going Look, too far. Can I, I can I try with where? Like, yeah. I feel like I know where you're headed. And the reason yeah. I laughed when you said that some people think that the net, some fans of the MCU movies feel like the Netflix shows are too violent. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like, are they more violent than the MCU? I mean, your heroes in the MCU are constantly killing people. And somehow Captain America has a magical ability to throw the shield and hit people without bones popping out the other side. And, like, I can understand how, like, the sort of non-physics working that way or, like, you know, Matt Murdock or Daredevil being able to hit someone in the head with a pipe and they're like, oh, they're just knocked unconscious. There's, right. there's some problematic aspects to that. But, like... In the MCU, they are very definitely killing a bunch of people, and right. the idea of killing someone or not is this question that's actually wrestled with in Daredevil, in Luke Cage, mm-hmm. right, in Jessica Jones. And right. so I, I feel like it's like there might be elements that are more graphic, and maybe that's what they're yeah. talking about, right, and the idea of gore or whatever, but like it's not, it's not really more violence. Um, yeah. You know, if the pacing yeah. isn't up your alley, fine. You know, but like, yeah, it's a it's you're being asked to come to terms with and to look right directly at the consequences of violence, right? You know, and I think that's the like, and again, like, it is upsetting to watch, and I don't think there's anything wrong with people being like, I, I just I, I get sick to my stomach, I'm uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want kids to watch that. It just as a larger societal thing, though, I think like there, there, there's something concerning to me about like that we have a whole bunch of entertainment that makes violence, like, sanitized. Right, right? It, it makes, makes violence, violence look fun and clean and whatever, and it's like, yeah. you know, when there's blood, there's blood, and if you don't show the blood, right. that doesn't actually help, Yeah, you know? I, I also thought that perhaps you were also laughing, because, like, the Netflix MCU is bloodier and gorier than the MCU movies by far. But you could put it up against something like The Boys, for example. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, <laughs> And yeah, it's yeah. just like, eh, but yeah, anyway. A lot more we can talk about that. Uh, let's step outside of the like heroes and villains kind of story, at least the violence, to talk about two shows that uh, one you introduced me to, the other I really loved. Um, but we're gonna start with Kim's convenience. Uh, start with Kim's convenience, and here again, um, I don't think we're gonna spoil too many details. It's also been out for a while, but but if you uh, Kim's convenience, I think is one of the best shows I've ever seen. It is connected to all this because if you remember us talking about the um, X-wing pilot in Mandalorian, um, what, what's the name of the actor? Who plays him? Paul Sung Hyung Lee. Paul Sung Hyung Lee. Uh, Paul Sung Hyung Lee. Um, I probably got that totally wrong. I apologize. Uh, but he he played that X Wing actor. He is the star of Kim's Convenience, or one of the stars. Um, it's not a uh, it's a, it's a it's a sitcom, but it's a wonderful take on a sitcom that has really affected, I think, uh, Paul you and I so much. So what what do you want to bring up about the show? Yeah. Uh, and again, we probably won't spoil big details, but if you want to, we might give away some jokes or something like that. So if you really want to see the show, which you totally should, skip ahead. Yeah. One thing that I mean, so first of all, it has Paul Sun Hyung Lee and it has Simu Liu. You know. Yes. Some people... Oh yeah. Also, star of Shang Chi. Yeah. I absolutely should. Have been that. <laughs> um, also, Gene Yoon, Andrea Bang, uh, Andrew Fung, Nicole Power, and you know other people. Um, but it, you know, one thing that I, I really like about the show, um, it, you know, it's basically 
speaking of sort of tropes or, or stereotypes, it's about, um, you know, a Korean family that owns a convenience store. And, right. uh, you know, the, the son, spoilers, is estranged from the father and works at a rental car agency, which is part of what was so funny in the beginning of Shang-Chi when he works like parking cars. Right? I think that had to be intentional. It had to be yeah. intentional. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Paul Sun Hyung Lee is not only in Star Wars or in The Mandalorian as um, Carson Teva, the you know X X Wing flyer person, um, but is also going to be uh, Uncle Iroh in the live action. Oh yes, yeah. Um, uh, Airbender adaptation, mm-hmm. which. Uh, instantly made me much more interested in that. <laughs> also, humorously, um, his nephew in that, uh, Zuko, is played by Dallas Liu, who is playing the younger Shang-Chi, in, oh, or the, the teenage Shang-Chi. So, <laughs> uh-huh. so uh, he's... This is one of those things where I'm both like, I love all these connections, but also, there needs to be more support for more Asian actors. Right, right, right. There's exactly. Like... There's, you know, but, you know, and that's that's what Lee said when she saw John Cho in, in you know, um, uh, Cowboy, Bebop. Cowboy Bebop. Like, aren't there other Asian actors? It's like, well, now there really are a lot more. Who, <laughs> right. And, and uh, to just briefly, I, to pivot into Shang-Chi briefly, because that's part of uh-huh. the influence of this show, right, is because this show had as much success as it did and has had, um, it made it a little easier for Simu Liu to get the role in Shang-Chi for there to be, like, somebody right. who then gets to host Saturday Night Live, right? And yeah. it's, like, it's... Often it's more than just about, like, okay, well, there's a big budget, um, you know... Um, Marvel movie with, you know, an all Asian cast or mostly Asian cast. It's like, well, you, you make stars that way. And, you know, speaking of, you know, we were talking about Scar, you know, ScarJo earlier, like when she got cast in Ghost in the Shell, there was a lot of sort of the defensive response from the studios was like, well, we can't cast a $20 million, you know, um, a huge box office star who's, who's Asian because there aren't any. It's like, but that's your fault. Yeah. Right? And it's like... I think it's such an important part of what Kim's Convenience did, uh, especially because with his character, um, he's basically like a himbo in that show. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's he's very pretty. He's not that bright. He's got a lot of intel- He's got a lot of emotional intelligence, but he's a little bit full of himself. He's Yeah, he's definitely not academically, you know. Yeah. And, and the show finds a lot of reasons to give him an excuse to take his shirt off. Yeah. Um, which And there was an awful lot of thirst generated about it. And that... You know, given that one of the, like, racist ideas was that, like, people wouldn't buy a sexy leading Asian man. Like, I think that show really helped because there was you, – you, if you look at the fandom, there's absolutely a lot of thirst about him. For there's sure, a lot yeah. of great – you know, and, like, he's a very attractive man, I think, for good reason. And, and yeah, I think that was something that – for me, I think Kim's convenience, it, it, it challenged so many of the ideas of, like, what Asian family and Asian community is going to be like. Um in terms of how it is, sh- how those are, things are shown on television so often and, and in movies, like one thing I love about it is about a Korean family that, as you said, runs a green grocer or that's what we call them in New York City, runs a convenience store in Toronto. And uh, the father uh, has a very thick Korean accent, is playing clearly a character who grew up in Korea, has come here. And there was just – and I, I mean I feel awful even just kind of saying that this, these kind of things surprised me. It's, it's my own inherent racism and, and, and things in the show helped me kind of connect. It was just – 
hearing them talk about like pop culture things and stuff like that and like their connection to parts of American culture that I think so often when we see characters who have a thick accent who are portrayed as being like very immigrant and still very following their own culture's traditions part of the idea is that therefore they're not engaging with things here you know and so hearing him and the uh his indian friend who owns an indian restaurant talk about like star wars and game of thrones you know right, it's right. just you don't Mr. see Metta. that on tv very often uh and i just I, I just love that i thought the show did so um i i know a lot of folks have compared it to blackish and that's a show that i've not seen but that I've, I've heard people talk about both of those shows being kind of important for similar ways um and yeah, I would just say this: is, it, it it became one of my favorite shows very quickly because I just loved how it. it it's great representation, but even beyond that, it just, it was so clearly taking on some of these tropes and stereotypes in great ways. Yeah, I mean, it's like first of all, I just think it's funny, right? Like, I yeah. think it's a well written, well acted. Like, the cast is great. It's funny. Um, you know, it does what it needs to do as a sitcom and just be uh-huh. a successful sitcom, right? Um, but then also, like, one of the things that I think it does really well is shows kind of the, you know, first generation and then second generation or generation 1.5 or whatever, depending on... I forget whether... I think Jung was maybe born in Korea and then they moved mm-hmm. when... I, I know um, Simu Liu was, was born in, in China, actually. And the rest right. of the, the main, you know, the family is played by... Um, uh, Korean Canadian and or Korean American actors. Um, but like sort of the, you know, the, like there's the parents generation basically. Like I view it as the parents generation, right? Because my wife is like more like generation 1.5, like her parents, right. you know, but that, but there's, there's different levels of like how much people do assimilate or want to, or, right. or not even assimilate because I think assimilate implies like sort of being a, an abandoning of one's, you know, original culture, like birth culture or whatever, right? Um, Whereas, like, I feel like Kim's Convenience shows that, like, that's not not necessarily the only choice, right? You can choose to be like, I'm going to move to a new place and I'm going to keep doing things the way I've done them and I'm not going to, I'm just going to do what I need to do, but I'm not necessarily going to do a whole lot interacting with people. Or you can go and be like, I'm going to leave everything I came from behind and I'm going to just try and totally 100% fit in or you can be like, I'm going to do some of both and mix. Yeah. And I feel like that's pretty much what they do, you know. And it does feel like there's a good amount of authentic, you know, Korean culture um, mm-hmm. in in the show. Um, you know, I mean, I, I spent 20 years doing Taekwondo with, uh, you know, Korean-American master, right? Yeah. And and so the, the, the father, uh, Appa, like really reminds me in some ways, you know, of... Yeah. Of that and of of him and um, and I found that all very relatable and it felt very authentic. I know at times, um, you know, the show did end up getting canceled because the the original creator of the show, Ince Choi, kind of stepped away from it a little bit, and so maybe there were some some issues in terms of the writing being a little more sort of stereotypical, not coming from you know a really genuine place and. You know, some of the cast stepping in being like, wait, this this isn't actually um, mm-hmm. this doesn't this isn't right. You know, and yeah. honestly, I think they should have taken on some of the cast members as producers for like a sixth and potentially yeah. final season. Right. I think that would have been really good. Um, I know Jean Yoon, who plays the, the mom, um, she was like, I had to consult on all the cooking because they were like getting things wrong. But like, yeah. but she did. And so they got something, you know, a lot of things right, I think. 
you know, it's interesting. I started by calling it a sitcom, which it is, but I think I think the things you're talking about are often also kind of endemic because a situa- a sitcom it is a situation comedy. It's the idea of like here's the situation that all the characters are in, and let's find all the humor in it. The problem that often comes up is the point is that the situation isn't supposed to change, you know? Right. And like that's fine when you're doing purely episodic stuff, but like <clears throat> a show where one where one of the key dynamics is that the father and son are estranged from each other, you know. After four seasons of them constantly, like, maybe reconnecting, maybe not, it starts to get a little problematic. Or, like, the daughter, who is, like, kind of very sheltered but wants to have her own thing, like, uh, you know, and I think more and more TV shows are willing to kind of break their own situations. So, yeah, I, th- I think I think some of it got stuck in that. I think some of what you're talking about, the, 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 the writer leaving, probably is a part of it. I would have loved to see another season, especially with some more consultation from the from the actors and the creators like that. I think though there's two things especially that I noticed about the show that were just very relatable to me in ways that I don't see. And one one was the father-son dynamic because even though by the end I was kind of frustrated that I felt like they weren't moving it forward, yeah. one of the things that I thought they did was so often it is we are badly estranged, but we have one good conversation and now everything's fine. Mm-hmm. And there was a certain gradual like we're totally estranged – we have one conversation, but then we fight a little bit more, and it kind of goes back to what it was. But now maybe we're a little bit closer. Like, they had a gradualism there that I appreciated, even if I, I felt like – eventually I felt like it had to resolve in a way that it hadn't. But I, I did like that over the four seasons, it changed and evolved without it just being fixed immediately. Yeah, it felt like a real relationship that – changes over time right but also yeah. a real relationship where some really deep hurt isn't magically cured by one good conversation and exactly and so i, I did feel like they were headed in the right direction for that it would it would have been nice to see and maybe it still will be who knows maybe netflix will pick it up or something right and they'll do like um, one more season but um the, the other thing was and this is obviously one that is like important to me i have never seen a show before where the family is multifaceted. They do all sorts of things. They have all sorts of interests. And one of the things is that they go to church. Mm. And it's not portrayed as that they are like – it is not a Christian show by any means. It's not a show about – like they are neither totally like the, the church is the center of their life and the center of the show. But also they're not portrayed as like super evangelical, telling everybody about the church all the time you know, quoting the Bible. Like, it's just, they're people who live their lives and do a lot of things in their lives, and one of them is that they go to church on Sunday and that the mother is somewhat involved in the church and that it's, for her, it's both a religious thing but also a cultural thing, mm-hmm. you know, and that it is a, a Korean church, although it does not get a, the pastor is not Korean, which which poses a whole bunch of other great stuff. Mm-hmm. And, like, as someone who has lived most of my life going to churches that are like, where it's, it's it's a thing you do and it's a part of your life, but it's not the whole thing. I, given how much awful stuff there is about pushing Christianity on, on people and we're in the middle of the Christmas season now where I love this particular holiday, but the fact that the whole country has to listen to a month of bad music about my holiday seems pretty <laughs> awful. Um, so I get why there isn't more of this, but I did really like it. And I liked that, that at times they engaged with the theology of it. They talked about, you know, uh, especially like uh, the mother gets sick and there's some great episodes about how this tests her faith and things like that. And I just, I, I just really appreciate that. Cause you so often, so rarely see that on TV or movies. Absolutely. It's like maybe the second show that I feel like I've ever seen where 
I don't even want to say religion is like a key aspect, but like re- religiousness or being like church. In a religious community. Yeah. Is, yeah, religious. yeah. Where the, I've, I've like appreciated it, you know? And yeah. I think it's because it is presented in a very real way in a, in a, like, this is an important part of these people's lives. Um, I feel like in, in American cinema and TV, Anyway, most of the time, what I feel like I see is this just implicit religious, this like implicit Christianity, uh-huh. where it's like kind of assumed that like everybody believes in God and is Christian and whatever. And like, obviously, but like, isn't actually dealt with as like a real element in anybody's life. Right. Or just like totally ignored. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I, I always struggle to find the best way to say this, but like, I'm not really in favor of, like, I don't believe in anything and I'm not in favor of religion in terms of what I've seen in its effects in the world in a larger scale. However, I I have seen, you know, I do know that it has a positive effect on people's lives in a, in a personal way or can. Right. Right. And um, I mean, all of my grandparents were like, I don't know if all, but like they all went to church and um, my, my dad's mom actually worked at a church and, um, and my dad had like a whole sort of like, um, I don't know, uh, experience, you know, where he like became like more Christian and that helped him with his drinking. And like, you know, I, I have my own thoughts on like what actually happens, but like what happened was that that was an experience that had a positive effect on his life. And, um, and, but like, you know, I always have viewed religion in, in a, in a fairly negative light, just in terms of like, because I think often like, you know, growing up in the United States, so much of what I hear is from fundamentalists, from people being like, oh, well, you can't get an abortion because blah, or we have to make this illegal or that illegal or, um, And so I feel like there aren't often these portrayals of like, you know, what it's like really like to just like be a person and be religious and go to church and, but to not be like in, not be evangelical and and go around and and trying to convert everyone all the time. Um, And, you know, so I did really appreciate how this was a part of their lives. It was a part of the story. Um, but it, it didn't feel like there was any agenda in terms of, I didn't feel like they were making fun of it. Um, they were having fun with it in spots, right. Just in terms of the interpersonal react interactions, but like, they also weren't like pushing it on people like, Oh, this is true. This is what you should believe. This is what you should do. It was just like, this is what these people do. And you know, and that's what it is. And I think maybe that's the best statement about it is the fact that for me, a, a practicing member of religion who's been a professional religious person for, for a lot of my life and you who's very, very on the other side can both appreciate and enjoy that. Right. Yeah. To me, um, that's success. Yeah. Let's let's go to the next one on the list. Um, so welcome back. Uh, I, I wanted to say one more thing. OK. Go yeah. ahead. Um, the, there was a... – I've also seen some discussion about sort of the accents and, and how, you know, the parents having accents and how that kind of plays out in the show. Um, I, if people are offended by it, you know, that's, I, I'm not telling you you shouldn't be, you know. Um, but at the same time, you know, there are 
real people with accents, right? And I think it's important. One one thing that I think the show does that I really appreciated is that it shows, you know, immigrant characters who have accents and they're full characters. They're really developed characters, yeah. right? And then they also show their children who don't have accents and they're full characters. They're developed characters. And yeah. I don't feel like the show particularly tries to skew one way or the other. It tries to show that there are, you know, that people with, you know, Asian faces basically might have accents, might not have. Well, everybody right. has an accent, right? They might have a Canadian accent or they might have a Korean Canadian accent. But just the sort of being able to have that that range of of um, experiences and people all represented, right? Like, it's not just like right. you have an Asian character and then you have Asian representation. It's like, no, there's a lot of different experiences. Um, and so, I, you know, I really appreciated that. I would like to see in the future shows like this have the parents, like, speak Korean at home, you know? Yeah. But at the same time, I understand how, like, maybe this is a step that happens before that. And I yeah. think that's fine. Yeah, I, I think both of those are true. And I think... You know, like I said, and this is not something I'm proud of, but like definitely I the show made me challenge a lot of my own thoughts that like I think there's some inherent level of like the stronger an accent that maybe like that, like the less sort of connected to American con mm-hmm. cultural conversation type things. Um, and, and, you know, the kind of thing I, I, if someone had ever said, like, do you believe in that? I'd be like, no, of course not. That's ridiculous. Right. But like just hearing, you know, the the, the parents generation with their thick accents talking about like you know um you know i don't think they mentioned game of thrones but definitely star wars and some other like the um that they get into discussions of like queer stuff and i'll, I'll comment on that in a second um you know just conversations that I, I think having them have the accent well there's two things one is that these were actors who were very not at least i understand it especially from uh uh paul mr kim you know he talked about that he was doing his father's accent right. like and that he that you very could my understanding from all the interviews is that this was not a situation where a director was asking an actor to make them to to use an accent that they found uncomfortable right. or that they found was a stereotype you know this was not a like fu manchu kind of awfulness this was him attempting to do honor to his father's accent and, and the accent of those of his father's generation um and, so, yeah, and at, so I think, at times even actually kind of toning down so that it's easier for people to understand who, yeah, who aren't exactly. as you know proficient at understanding yeah. accents, and that's we've gone a lot longer about the show than I wanted to. But my bad. The weird thing I want to say is no, no, it's fine. But there's one other thing I wanted to say about it is that because uh, that'll actually tie us in well to the next mm-hmm. show I want to talk about. Um, Mr. Kim is presented as someone who is a position that I think you don't see very often, which is he is very good-hearted. He's a little bit ignorant about some things. And he is a little bit defensive about his own ignorance, but he's also happy to learn when he can, you know? Yeah. And so there's there's a, uh, actually one of the – I think it's a literal opening scene of the show mm-hmm. is about him, like, trying to understand some of the kind of nuances of, like, queer, trans conversations and being kind of confused by it. And it, it gets a little bit too much, like, kind of making fun of that that, I'm, that I was 100% comfortable with. But then I – especially once I watched more of the show and I realized – the show is both it is pointing out that he has these views that aren't great and that the show is about him learning and moving past that but it does it in a way that is both not oh ha ha it's okay to be homophobic because this particular person is making homophobic humor but also not 
ha-ha, this idiot immigrant doesn't understand how woke and social justice we are, let's make fun of him. You know, it, it really walked this careful line of there are people who, you know, the things that you, some folks might not understand because they haven't been introduced to the concept, and at first the reaction may not be great, and it's oh, we should call out that reaction because it's not great, but that doesn't mean they're a hater and they can be moved to, you know, they can move towards something better. Yeah, it felt to me like it wasn't quite laughing at him it wasn't mm-hmm. quite it wasn't laughing at queerness it was laughing at the awkwardness that results from right sort of a, a bit of a you know culture clash and a lack of understanding but then um there's just the one line that i really enjoyed where he was asking like well you know can i ask you like why do you do this and uh-huh. and they're like because it feels like home you know He's like, okay, you know, and yeah. and it was sort of like a desire to understand was shown. You know, there's still, you know, and and yeah, it's like I don't think it's perfect, you know, but I I yeah. think it can be very difficult to navigate comedy around, um, you know, yeah. various aspects of representation. But I, I feel like it did a much better job than most. Yeah, and and when it's the first scene of your first episode, yeah. like I, that, you know, and, and it just kept getting better and better. Yeah. And I just, to me, Mr. Kim, is, and I've heard from a lot of folks who who said things like this. I saw a lot of great memes where it talked about like, Mr. Kim is like, if I had people were talking about like if I had to have a dad to come out to, like Mr. Kim mm. would be a great example of that. Because yeah, it's that like, part of it is isn't even about his feelings about queerness or about any of these things. He's I think part of just his culture is oh I don't understand that. Explain it to me. Right, right, you know, right. He, and he'll have this yeah, very, yeah. like, kind of aggressive kind of like, well, you need you need to justify your thing by having it make sense to me. Right. That is problematic in general and can be especially bad with sensitive topics like this. And it's good that, like, everyone else in his family calls him out on it and he, he adjusts later. But also, it, it, again, it's like it's not it's not a specific thing about doubting this person's gender or identity. It's he just – he thinks – he thinks everything in America in the Americas is kind of weird. You know, he's Canadian, not American, but like he's he kind of questions a lot of things. Yeah. And so yeah. I, so let's wrap up that. Let's not. Um, we're already going pretty long. There's a couple things we want to talk about. So I'm just going to very quickly talk, I, touch on. Sorry, I'm just laughing. I'm looking at the list. I'm like, what was I thinking? Yeah, <laughs> we have way too many things on here. Um, terseness is just never it's a thing okay. for you it's and I. Okay. We gotta get like Ashley or some other person on with a bell just to like you know keep. I like it. I like it. A buzzer. Yeah, but so let's talk about Shit's Creek. And again, I'm not gonna. Well, you're gonna spoil spoil, something that isn't. I'm gonna spoil something by talking about what doesn't happen. So if you want to see Shit's Creek, it again like I think spoiling Spider-Man is bad because the reveals are a big part of Mm. it. I think with Kim's convenience, Shit's Creek, it's much more about enjoying spending time with these people. Yes. So I very much strongly advise watching it. I don't think I'm going to spoil anything huge, but I'm going to spoil a couple of things. So if you do want to be very careful about that, uh, definitely uh, skip ahead a little bit. Schitt's Creek is a it is a show about people learning to be better people. It, it starts out being about very, very privileged people who are put in a bad situation. And you're making fun of them. And there's some parts of the humor, especially the first season, that's a little awkwarder than I like. But it makes a very conscious decision that some of the characters are queer, and it tells a queer love story. Like that's one of the main romances of the show. It's a beautiful romance and very much couple goals between two of the men on the show. And I hadn't even realized this until someone pointed it out, and then I heard that the the writers talk about it was intentional. 
there is no queer trauma ever shown in the show. Mm. Like, no one ever has any problem with the fact that these two characters, that, that a couple of the characters are queer. Yeah. Um, even to the point of one of the characters is, um, uh, one of the characters, like, there's some concern about the parents. And I think it's done in a way to sort of brace you for the fact of these are going to be parents who are like, well, why are you, mar- you know, why are you marrying another man? Because he, like, I, if I remember correctly, he wasn't, he, he comes out as queer over the course of the show. Um, but even then, like, the, the parents' concern was about, like, just, you know, our son's getting married. We're worried he's going to be with someone who might hurt him or something like that. There's no, like, in so many shows, like, there was a joke that, like, if you made a queer movie in the 90s, somebody had to die of AIDS. Hmm. And on the one level, like, it was important to tell that story because it was for many pe- for many people in the queer community. It's just, you all knew many people who were dying of HIV AIDS. But it's like, you should be able to tell stories with you should be able to tell stories without that, you know, in the same way that like people get upset if like every woman hero is a hero because she dealt with sexism. And so she's fighting back or every black character has to have some traumatic racial experience in their past. Like queer people should just get to have be fun characters in romantic comedies and, and sitcoms and get to have wonderful love stories. And it just, there's so much about the show I loved, but I just wanted to hold that up because it had, to my knowledge, it had never been done in a long-form TV show like this. And it's just – it was such a good thing to see. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly can't uh, challenge whether or not it's ever been done on any other show. Yeah. But, I mean, it is – it's exceptional that that's exceptional, first of all, you know, right. that like – but I think that's so important, you know. I mean, I, I watched yeah. some of the beginning of the show. Um, I, I didn't get up to that part, but, you know, I yeah. – I think it's pretty clear what you're talking about. Um, you know, just from watching one episode, it's like, okay. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, I, I, I think what you said is so important in terms of it's important to deal with a lot of these traumatic issues in stories. Like, there should right. be stories that deal with all kinds of trauma, right? All kinds of yeah. oppression. There also should be stories where any where a person of any given sort of, you know, identity gets to just be themselves and have people problems, right? That aren't a result of their identity that are just like, yeah, you know, there's stuff happens in life and we deal with it. And, you know, we, we think like, is this the right person for me? You know, what's, what's going on? Like, uh, I'm trying to to, to be successful in some particular thing. Like, and, uh, you know, I always, to me, it's, it it feels so important that we have both and, you know, one has clearly definitely been done a lot, right? Like in the 90s, a lot of gay men died of AIDS, you know? And so those were very important stories to tell, but also very important to tell stories where that's not the, yeah. that's not something that happens, right? Right. You don't have to do the re-traumatization again. Exactly. Again. And I think when something's done so much, it's like, maybe let's not do it at all for a little while. And then we can kind of... Yeah put it back in the mix but not have it be like the thing that's always yeah i mean it's kind of like fridging you know right. like is it possible that a male character will have a major life turn because a woman who's very important to him dies like yes that's that is a story beat that can be a part of some stories right. but it's just so overdone at this yeah. point you know like let's not have uh yeah so it, it just was a great thing the show also contains what is i think 
by many people sort of considered like the greatest metaphor about pansexuality, where a character explains like you know that he um the the woman who asks him it's a situation where uh uh she this is gonna be a bit of a spoiler so skip ahead if you you don't want to hear this but basically like a character who's been portrayed as primarily gay um sleeps with a woman and they're in a wine store and the and the woman says so I thought you liked red wines, but do you also like white wines? <laughs> and he does this whole thing about like, yeah, I, I like white wines. I like red wines. Sometimes I like a rosé. I once really enjoyed a Merlot that used to think it was a Chardonnay. Like, and, and, and he ends it with saying, I enjoy the wine, not the label on the mm, bottle. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought that was such a like, you know, for some people, uh, like their bisexuality plays out like, yeah, that, that gender is an important part of their attraction. But that for this particular character... He and it's interesting because the actor is gay and he was one of the writers, but he wanted to have bisexual representation, pansexual representation because it's not happened often. And so he was the character. The whole idea of the character was that he's attracted to people and that gender isn't the defining aspect. Yeah. And that was just again that should not all bisexuals are like that. And often that's the distinction drawn between bisexuality and pansexuality. That's a whole other much longer distinction, and the terms are very gray. But it was just great to see that character as well, and that that metaphor has become a. If you've seen that meme, it, this is what it's from. <laughs> awesome. Uh, all right. So let's pick one more thing. Uh, let's each pick one more thing from this list. What's the one you want to pick? Oh, I was going to say, why don't we just do each one and do like one minute? Like, Sure. Okay. Yeah. Also, I wanted to say about, like, I feel like female bisexuality is actually very common. But like male yes. bisexuality, like, is almost non-existent in, yes. in Western media anyway. And even then, female bisexuality is often you're going to wind up romantically paired with a masculine right. person, but you might have you know you, you had some college dalliances, yeah, yeah. or you're gonna have a threesome, or like it's often a, it, a fetishized way, right? Or, yeah, it's used to like it's that. like used to titillate men basically, or whatever. And, right. Yeah. Exactly. All right, Judas and the Black Messiah. One minute, fifteen seconds. Begin. So I thought it was awesome. Um, yeah, it, I loved it. <laughs> it. It shows I, – I really appreciate it. Okay, it's a story about the assassination of Fred Hampton by right. the FBI. and Who was one of the leaders of the Black Panthers in Chicago. Yes, and I really liked how it didn't um, centrist wash Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers. Like, it really showed them as the leftist black nationalists that they were, right? Yep. Um, and I, I think Lakeith Stanfield, again, standout performance. He played, yep. uh, B- I forget what his name was, but um, I feel like, was it Bill he, there too? But he he's yeah, the, he, he was he's Judas. He's an FBI informant yeah. who like, and it, again, talk about the conversation we had before. He's someone in a terrible position yes. where he's in total trouble with the law. He does this because he doesn't really have a choice, but then he really starts to like become, you know, he becomes kind of the, the you know, the person who, who really falls for he really starts to believe in uh in the cause of the black panthers and it makes the whole thing so much more painful yeah and i think his character is just very sympathetic and despicable you know and it's rough yeah. and uh fred hampton is played by i forget the actor's name but um he's in black panther as the head of the guard ciao alberto minute 15 seconds <laughs> that's <Go>. that's longer <laughs> than the thing itself it's like four minutes <laughs> spin off from luca basically um okay and it it shows, I feel like, a really nice um, kind of, like, father-son, you know, but, like, right. found family, adopted, you know. Um, and mm-hmm. it's just, it's short. It's simple. It's, like, four minutes. If you watch Luca, go watch Ciao Alberto. Um, 
that's all I got. It's good, but okay. it's super short. Yeah. You know? I haven't seen it. I love so much about um, uh, Luca and those characters that I will enjoy seeing it. Cool. We did not get to the full uh, yeah. time. Chicago 7, minute 15 seconds. I'll begin. So this is a story about the trial of Chicago 7, which for those people who don't know, the 1968 Democratic Convention is, is seen by a lot of people as kind of like one of the high points of um, hippie leftist, uh, you know, rebellion and protest against um, it, it really. I mean, it was kind of today, like today, it was progressives fighting against liberals, you know, or uh, the centrists of that time, because it was people who were really upset that the Democratic Party was still going to be pro Vietnam War, was not really taking on racism in the right ways, was not really addressing all these things. And it, it became a, you know, it is now understood as a moment of, like, complete police oppression and, uh, you know, utter, like, just, you know, tear gassing crowds and harassing crowds and beating up crowds. Things, that, of course, we don't see at all today. Um, and the trial just does a great job, I thought, of it gets into all the issues. But the main conflict in the trial is between a kind of center left person who wants to work within the system to make things better and a full-on person, like, revolutionary person who just wants to tear the whole thing down. And I just loved how much it was about the tension between those two and that neither one was right or wrong, that they both kind of, they both had good points and they could learn from each other. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed it. I didn't know that much about what actually happened there. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I don't know how faithful it was to everything that happened, but, you know, it... I thought it was very well written. It's uh, it's Aaron Sorkin, I think, at Aaron Sorkin's yep. finest. Um, the cast is outstanding. Uh, it has a Fred Hampton cameo also. Yeah, um, here played. He's an important part. Yeah, uh, and well, time. What? <laughs> Bobby Seale is the one who who was uh, in the trial but wasn't supposed to be in the trial or kind of got taken oh, yeah, out of the trial. Right. right, Fred Hampton was there like consulting him, and it was Daniel Kaluuya as. Um, uh, Fred Hampton and Lakeith right. Stanfield did play Bill O'Neill in uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, not in this. And I think, I think, I think the assassination of Fred Hampton takes place during the yes, trial. Yes, it does. It does. And that's one of the things that gets Bobby Seale so angry. Yeah, and the reaction um, to it, kind yeah. of, and how people feel about it. And it's all we're going over minute fifteen here sure, because sure. it's such an important thing. But it, 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 one of the things it also shows is the extent to which the white, the white people on trial are aware that Bobby Seale is being treated much worse by the yes. judge. And that they really tried – and that in some extent, they did much more radical stuff than he did. Mm -hmm. And so there's a real attempt of them real, of them recognizing that we are taking actions that are getting our black allies in trouble. Right. We need to take responsibility for this. We need to stand up for this, which – yeah. So to me, that's just such an important story that, again, is, is – it, it, to me, it had a lot of relevance today when we looked at, like, George Floyd things and about, like – Who's starting problems at protests when it's mostly the, the people of color who are going to be more taking the brunt of it and things like that? Uh, although it's the police that are starting it nine times out of ten, yeah. to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, yeah. So that wraps up Chicago 7. Uh, Narcos, Mexico. Minute 15 on the clock. Go. Uh, really good show. It's got Michael Pena as um, a DEA agent who decides to get really involved in the drug war in Mexico. Um, as, you know, uh, it also has Diego Luna as Felix Gallardo, who's um, basically trying to create a, a cartel, right? Who's trying uh -huh. to kind of unify all of the um, Diego Luna of, you know, Rogue One and uh, Andor right. fame. Um, 
Michael Pena of Ant-Man, of course. I feel like I need to relate everything to, you know, uh, genre media. But uh-huh. uh, I, I feel like Narcos Mexico is like, I wonder whether Narcos in general is conceived of as copaganda, basically. Mm. Or, like, to me, it feels like they always show both sides in a way where you can kind of make your own decisions about how you feel about the different sides. Um, I mean, I think what the U.S. was doing in Mexico and Colombia, like, what was the U.S. doing in in Mexico and Colombia, you know? Yeah. Um, and it kind of gets into that. And I think it shows the DEA and, you know, the cops is, like, not really being on the side of good. But also the narcos kind of go around murdering a lot of people. Not so good. It, it, to me, it very much had a. Uh, 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 I've not seen Narcos Mexico. I saw the first scene of Narcos. It very much to me felt like um, The Wire. You know, yeah, in yeah. terms of like both sides are really broken, both sides are trapped, though. It's the systems that are failing. I agree. Less than the individuals. I agree. Uh, ca- ca- Casa de Papel. Right. Um, Minute 15. Also so. billed as Money Heist on. Um, on Netflix, I actually rage quit it in season four because they did too many things I didn't like. But uh, I absolutely loved the first couple seasons. Uh, it is a little like soapish and contrived at a lot of points, but it's also a really good heist thing with cool outfits. Um, and it's a show in Spanish that made me learn Italian um, because <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because they they take to singing the song uh, Bella Ciao, which is this like anti-fascist anthem from italy Mm. um but it's actually it was appropriated by you know the partisans from uh the the it was originally about the the laborers in the rice paddies so it was originally not just like anti-fascist it was like specifically leftists and pro-worker um most of Uh whom were women um and it's like you know brutal backbreaking work um and so I think it's it's kind of just the history of that song is interesting. And uh, the show is, I've seen it described as unapologetically Spanish, where they felt like they didn't have to um, kind of, I, I don't know if westernize, but like Americanize, Hollywoodize, you know, yeah. things. And, and um, I recommend at least the first two seasons. Time. All right. Uh, a TV show about a New York City that is completely unrecognizable to me. Master of None season three. Right. So Master of None was basically um, Aziz Ansari and Alan Yang um, creating a show that was really great in terms of representation and kind of people telling their own stories. And um, I I think breaking, you know, Asian-American stereotypes in a lot of ways. Um, Mm -hmm. In fact, that's the show when I realized that Indian was also Asian. Like I kind of thought of you know the sort of indian subcontinent area as being kind of its own thing which it is but also is you know in asia um and uh season three is about uh it's it's written more by lena waith uh i hopefully i'm not butchering her name um and it's more about her experience as a gay black woman you know, and um, and with her, you know, wife partner, it's called Moments in Love. Um, okay. And uh, Naomi Aki is is the other um, star of that it's season. Show, it's a show that I want to watch because it's funny, and I've realized this is what happens in New York City, like generation after generation after generation, is that people like a whole bunch of people move to New York City to start their adult lives. You know, mm-hmm. so they move there in their twenties. And New York City gets kind of reinvented with each new generation that's there. 
and the people who grew up in the city are often like, wow, what the hell's happening here? And I, I, I just was utterly unable to relate to season one because mm. it was so not the New York City I grew up yeah. in or that I knew experienced. But once I got it connected, that I was at, like, I think that I, I, I want to go back and watch it again with an understanding of like, okay, this is the New York City that I knew, but like, this is people are living in the city now, and this is these are important stories too. Yeah, it does feel um, legit New York to me in a way that kind of Hawkeye didn't. Like, it feels like it takes place in New York, but it feels like it takes place mm. in Williamsburg with people that I didn't really hang out with. You know, that's fair. season three that's fair. takes place. More in the country. And I think it's interesting because Aziz Ansari had his whole thing where a bunch of people got mad at him about a thing. Right. And then he did a comedy special. But, like, he didn't come back to do season three because he said he didn't feel like he had something to say, kind of, like, based on oh, his own life. That. And he and so Lena Waithe, who um, had received um, – she, she won some award for uh, the uh-huh. Thanksgiving episode that I believe she had written from one of the earlier yep. seasons. Um she came with this story that was based in her life, and uh, and I think it's really powerful. It's not that funny. It's like a very different show, you know. Yeah. And it feels what? like French, like like this kind of like avant garde, like the yeah. pacing. But I, I think it's I'll worthwhile, it and I think it's great in terms of you know representation. Paper Tigers and Ip Mom, you're doing both in a minute 15, and hopefully I'll have something to say. Go. Yeah, so Paper Tigers is just a movie that showed up on Netflix, and I was like, maybe I'll watch this, because, you know, it's uh, some people about my age coming back to martial arts, uh, getting beaten up a lot, and, you know, then maybe beating some people (laughs) up. But uh, it... Basically, they were like, we're going to make a, you know, a kung fu film um, with, you know, a minority cast. It's like two Asian American characters and like one black character. And they took to the studio and they're like, okay, but uh, can we make the lead Bruce Willis? And can you write a a part for for Nicolas Cage? And um, and they're like, no. So they did a Kickstarter (laughs) and they made it. And uh, I guess it's supposed to be funny. It like I didn't love it. But I appreciate that they made this movie for like $4 million. They made it on their own terms instead of making it with Bruce Willis for $20 million, you know, or $50 million. Nice. Um, And then Ip Man is uh, the story of uh, Ip Man, who is um, actually Bruce Lee's teacher, uh, a legendary Wing Chun teacher. Um, and it takes place during World War II, during the the Japanese occupation. And that plays a big role. Oh, cool. You know, and so there's a, a whole thing with... Um, you know, Japan and China and how that plays out. All right. I'm going to go over a minute 15. Uh, this is the last. That's of fine. It, so, yeah. um, and, uh, but then it also deals with like sort of Northern versus Southern uh, styles mm-hmm. of martial arts and, you know, Northern Chinese right. versus Southern Chinese, Northern Chinese historically, I, I'd say have often and right now uh, been fairly oppressive towards Southern Chinese. You know, there's, there's mm-hmm. a lot of different, um, and I mean, I'm tremendously simplifying something I only know a little bit about, but um, right. but basically it's complicated. Also, the dude uh, representing the North looks like Carl Urban. And once you see it, you cannot see it. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's what I yeah, got. Yeah, it's definitely something I want to see. We were talking earlier about how the um, that period of history of the Japanese occupation of a lot of parts of Asia and like, you know, all the things that were happening there. Um, 
both in terms of like problematic stuff, but also like the the anti-colonialism that Japan was going for, but then kind of recall it. Like there's, there's a whole bunch to that story that is just not told as much in, in Western media that I really wish was. So um, uh, it sounds like this is only telling like one small part of it, but definitely an interesting thing to check yeah. out. Yeah, so, and by problematic, cool. I think it's usually pronounced atrocities, but... <laughs> yes, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, 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 I know, I know you weren't... But yeah, but it, it, it's that whole range yes. of like going from like, yeah, the the recognizing that like, the reason they were fighting Westerner, like they were fighting like the Dutch in Indonesia, right. they were fighting like the Americans in the Philippines, yeah, yeah. they were the, they were fighting the French in Indochina, is because like they were driving out uh, Western colonial oppressors who had done horrible, horrible things, yeah. but then also doing a lot of horrible things as well, yeah. and just I mean, yeah, getting into all of that. Um, the world's complicated. Empires are horrible. <laughs> Here we yes. are. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. So with that, uh, let's call it a wrap. Uh, there's a lot of stuff we've talked about. Paul, what's what's your like? What what do you think is going to be your defining memory of like media from 2011, 2021? I don't know why I keep going to 2000. <laughs> right. It's exactly ten years. Um, I I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. I, I, I don't know. I mean. Uh, watching stuff at home mostly, <laughs> and that yeah. one time I got in my car, drove an hour to go sit in my car, listen to Shang Chi on like a shitty little radio, and then drive <laughs> home just so I could talk about it on a podcast where Will got disconnected anyway. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was such a disaster, but we had fun. It was fun anyway. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I think for me it's the watching from home and the um. I do feel like we're getting more and more media that is pushing into gray areas. Mm-hmm. You know, we're getting less and less about like easy, neat heroes. Um, Hawkeye did this. Even um, I'm not gonna get into it all, but like Spider-Man raised so many ethical questions that I'm. We already put one episode up. Um, I'm definitely Paul. Once you watch it, I think it's gonna be a lot for you and I to talk about. So we'll do that like in mm-hmm. a couple months. Um, I might do something else somewhere before mm-hmm. then. There's just there's just so much good stuff out there. So. Thank you, Paul, as always. Uh, to our fans, what do you think? What are some of your favorite stories from 2021? What are some of the things that, that kind of most stuck with you? Issues that you wish we discussed? We're still planning our 2022 schedule. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you want to hear us talk about. Uh, you can find us on social media at uh, search for The Ethical Panda uh, on Facebook. On Twitter, it's EthicalPanda77. Of course, the easiest thing, go to, eth- go to TheEthicalPanda.com. There you'll find all our social media. you find all the episodes of all the different things that I'm doing. And uh, you'll find all the ways to contact us. Let us know. Uh, here on this podcast, we are also continuing our c- content on The Witcher. Uh, we've got a lot of great stuff lined up for 2022 that are going to get started. On the Star Wars Universe podcast on December 27th, two days after Christmas, we'll be releasing our first episode on the Book of Boba Fett. 29th, right? now. Right? No? Yeah, I'm sorry. No, the 29th. Uh, so a couple more days after Christmas. Um, so that's going to be released on the 29th. Ashley Coffin will be my official co-host. Paul Hoppy will be my unofficial co-host, unless they kill animals. Um, but we'll see. And then he may still have some strong comments. But either way, check that out. Check out all the other great things that are happening. Check out Zen Madman. We can find Paul is talking a lot more about uh, poker and other stuff like that on Twitter, on YouTube, any other places they should be looking? Uh, Twitch at some point. And, like, I have a website, but there's nothing there right now. Cool. I did cool. find well, a theme for this year's content, though. Oh, what's that? I mean, and just if you look at the list of things that we had, it's just like getting to see a broader, you know, a broader range of stories or a broader range yeah. of, of main characters have often somewhat similar stories, but that are um, also have a lot of specific details. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a big thing. I think like kind of the first step of moving towards representation is like, 
the people who have always been telling the stories making sure to include other people in their stories. Yeah. Like, that's, that's a good step. But now, like, how about other people telling their own stories? Right, for sure. And I think we're getting so much more of that. So, fans, definitely check out all of Paul's stuff. Check out all the stuff going on at Ethical Panda. Check out all the great podcasts happening at strandofpanda.com. And the most important thing, have a happy new year. Oh, yeah. Happy Festivus. We're recording this on Festivus. We've got some grievances. And the, yeah, oh, 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 we've got some <laughs> grievances. <laughs> Take care. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>